Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiman. Great to be with you here this afternoon. I was debating what to talk about. On the one hand, we just came from Lagba Omer. On the other hand, there's also Perky Avot. And personally, I'm missing all the senior citizens at our daily program, but I want to remind everyone that those who are of the young at heart age group can join our Chabad Seniors Club. We have daily Zoom classes, and you're welcome to participate and join along with us. Also, if you want a Shabbos pack, senior citizens only, then let me know, and we will make sure to get a special Shabbos gift to our seniors. Now, the thoughts go back and forth in my mind. On the one hand, we have the Lagba Omer celebration that was. On the other hand, per this Shabbos, we read Chapter 5 of Perki Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. And therefore, I thought I, I'll touch a little bit on that and discuss the significance of Perki Avot, as well as the importance of Chapter 5, and to, pry, to try to glean some lessons that could be relevant to this period where we find ourselves. Let's just go with a little bit of an introduction of what is Perki Avot. Because the Mishnah, which is where Perki Avot belongs, was compiled by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the great scholar, teacher, thinker, who took many of the ideas, the teachings of the time, and compiled it into a book. This was around 1800 years ago, the end of the second century of the Common Era. And this is the first written document of Torah Shabal Peh, which is the oral Torah. Until that point, there was no transcribing of the oral tradition. It was passed on from generation to generation. The thing is that Rabbi Yehuda realized that with Jews being dispersed around the world, spread everywhere, the importance of writing it down. We could think in our time about the innovation of video, of radio, of television, and the opportunities we have right here on Chai FM of sharing so much Torah. And it can be broadcast around the world. Our seniors program, Shiorim, used to be only in Chabad House, and now we get to broadcast them well beyond the limitation of the walls of Chabad House. So in the centuries after Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi compiling the Mishnah, the words of the Mishnah were obviously very much analyzed and discussed, and there were deliberations. This is what we call the Gemara, the Talmud. So together, the Gemara really is what we call, what someone studying Gemara, we know what the Gemara pages are, but the combination of Gemara and Mishnah together is what we call the Talmud. So when you hear people referring to the Talmud, it generally, correctly, is referring to both the Mishnah and the Gemara. Now, the Mishnah consists of 60 volumes. We call them Masechtas, tractates. Each one is devoted to a different area of Jewish law. One of these is Masechet Avot, the tractate of our fathers, ethics of our fathers. Or Pirki would be maybe more chapters of the fathers. That would be the more precise translation. But it's usually known as ethics of the fathers. Now, Avot, these chapters consists of various sayings by many of the great leading sages of that time. We call them the fathers. They lived in the period of the Mishnah, which is around 200 before the Common Era to around 
200 after the Common Era. And they were the primary teachers and transmitters of Torah at that time, discussing the end of the Second Temple Era and the century plus after its destruction. Now, all of the Talmud's tractates include many teachings, moral, ethical teachings, but this particular tractate's focus, the primary focus of it, is on a person's legal obligations under Torah law. The exception, now, most trap, most tractates, meaning, are discussing the various laws, except for Avot. Pirkei Avot is completely devoted to the cultivation of our positive character traits, of having the right attitudes. The sayings of our fathers convey the Torah's guidance on how to approach our relationship with God, our relationship with our fellow human beings, our relationship with the world in which we live. So, on the weeks between Pesach and Shavuos, we study Pirkei Avot. Each week, another chapter studied on the Shabbos afternoon during the six weeks period. And one of the reasons for this custom is based on the concept of Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. Derech Eretz means ethical behavior comes before Torah, which is one of the Mishnaic teachings. Now Shavuos, which we're going to celebrate in exactly two weeks time, is when we celebrate, commemorate God's giving us the Torah on Mount Sinai. So in preparation for this monumental event, we study the ethical and inspirational teachings of Pirkei Avos, the ethics of our fathers. And many people continue, not just until Shavuos, but even after Shavuos, repeating the cycle a few times throughout the months until Rosh Hashanah comes around. The original tractate of us in the Mishnah has five chapters, but as there are six weeks between Pesach and Shavuos, a sixth chapter was added from the other Mishnahic sources, which complete the entire study cycle. So we have six weeks from Pesach to Shavuos. This Shabbos will be the fifth week. And so we're going to examine some of the teachings of chapter 5 of Pirkei Avos this week. And of course, to glean some of the important messages and lessons that are relevant to us during this particular time. So let's begin by, um, you know, there's, there's so much. So we're going to pick a Mishnah that stands out to me. And this is Mishnah 16, if you're following with and the Mishnah says as follows, Any love that is dependent on something, what happens is, When that thing ceases, the love is also gone. But a love that is not dependent on anything particular, then that love will never end. What kind of love is one that's dependent on something? Says the Mishnah, the Avas, Amnon, the Tamar, that is the love of Amnon and Tamar. But a love that's not dependent on anything, that is the love of David and Jonathan. And we will discuss that when we're back.
Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, welcome back to Salt to Salam, Rabbi Ari Kivman. And we are talking Turkey about chapter 5, Mishnah 16. Let's quickly recap the Mishnah and then discuss some ideas of the Mishnah related to our lives, how we could enhance our lives from the Mishnah. And the Mishnah says as follows. Any love that's dependent on something, when that thing ceases, the love is also gone. But a love that's not dependent on anything, such a love never ceases. In my sphere of practice, working with senior citizens, I think that seniors always love the children, and it's not dependent on anything. But let's see, as we explore the Mishnah, what the Mishnah says here. What is a love dependent on something? The Mishnah tells us the love of Tamar and Amnon, whereas a love that's not dependent on anything is the love of David and Jonathan. Well, let's discuss this a bit. The the text of this Mishnah, 16th Mishnah, and let's discuss the meaning of this Mishnah and then move on to explore some of the deeper meanings that are implicit within the text that we read. So the basic meaning of our Mishnah is that when love between two people is based on an ulterior motive, For example, when one person desires the other person's physical beauty or financial success, that love will endure. That's a love that will last, but for how long? For as long as the asset or the quality endures. As my mother of blessed memory would say, easier to borrow from the bank than to marry for money. On the other hand, altruistic love. One that comes from a pure desire to bond with the other person. That's a love that will always endure. It's not dependent on any external factors. And the Mishnah that gives two examples. What were the examples, remember? First example is the story of Amnon and Tamar, which is related in the book of Shmuel, of the prophets. And one of King David's children or let's talk about that, right? Uh, Amnon was obsessed with the beauty of his half-sister, Tamar. And one day, he pretended to be ill. And when Tamar came into the room to bring him food, he grabbed her, and it was a very unfortunate story where he raped her. But once he satisfied his desire, the book of Shmuel describes how he hated her with such a great hatred, greater than the love that he ever had for her before. So that's one example. The other example is the one from another one from the book of Shemuel. And that is the friendship of King David himself and his brother-in-law, Jonathan. You see, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, who was the first monarch of the Jewish people. Now, Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, he was, as we know from the story, where he didn't fulfill God's command in the war of Amalek, and therefore he was to be replaced by King David as his successor. And now, of course, Shaul wasn't very happy to be losing the throne, and he tried to pursue his son-in-law, David, very Interesting, you could say sad story in our history, 
where Jonathan had nothing to gain from his friendship with David. In fact, as he would have been the natural successor to his father's throne, he had everything to lose by his friendship with David. Yet, we see from the narrative and the story how he loved David. And numerous times how he interceded and saved David's life. Why? Because that love, as the Mishnah described, was not a love that was dependent on something in particular. In the book of Shmuel it says, Yohannesson's soul became bound to the soul of David. He loved him as his own self, meaning it wasn't dependent on any particular, it wasn't a financial benefit, it was no other gain. As you can see in the story, it's evidently clear. Tell the story about, for many years, the two brothers, Zush and Arimelech. Many, many stories about them. Probably the most famous story. Anyway, let me focus on this. They would wander the, the back roads of Europe. We're talking about a good 200 years ago. They chose upon themselves, before they became renowned as the great rabbis who they became known for later, they were disguised as simple beggars and they would journey from town to town, from village to village. They would refine their souls with the travails of exile. And their their ideal purpose was to inspire any Jews they met, encourage them to not lose faith during those difficult times. One evening... The brothers arrived in the town of Lodmir. And there they saw a window lit up in a large, beautiful, magnificent home. So they knocked on the door and they asked if they could sleep overnight. The wealthy owner of the home looked at them and says, I don't run a hotel. There's a poor house near the shul. You could go there. That's where all wandering beggars go to sleep for the night. I'm sure they have no trouble finding whatever accommodations you need there. And with that, he slammed the door in their faces. Rebelli Melech and Zusha walked on and now they saw another house that was well lit. There, through the window, they could see the town scribe, the sofa, who's writing, obviously writing, uh, Scriptures, whether it would be for tefillin or for mezuzah or for Torah. And as they knocked on his door, he welcomed them in and he made whatever accommodation he could in his humble, simple lodgings. Well, several years passed. Like I said, these two great brothers, later at this point, they were pretending to be beggars. But later on, they became... Renowned, renowned great rabbis. And now they were invited as official guests of the community. The community invited them to speak, guest scholars and residents. And everybody came to be there, to hear their teachings, to hear their inspiration, to hear their story. And there at the welcoming reception that was held in their honor, all the people, especially the chashiv, the wealthy people came, and one of the wealthy men said, Rabbis, the town council has granted me the honor of hosting you during your stay. You're welcome to come to my house. 
God has been generous to me, and nothing is going to be lacking in my home. I already made all the plans for you, accommodation, food, everything you need. I explained to your coachman how to find my home, and he'll never miss it. Well, at the end of this event, Reb Zushan Malach went to pay the respects to the Rav, communal rabbi, meet with the scholars in the, in the study hall, and the rich man went home to supervise the final arrangements for the rabbi's stay for the accommodation in this home. Soon, the coachman arrived with the coaches and the luggage and everything else. Horses were placed in the stables. Today, he parked the car. The luggage in the rabbi's room and the coachman settled in the servants' quarters. Hours passed, but still no sign of the visitors. The host, you can imagine, is getting a little bit anxious, worried. So he asked the coachman, what happened? When are they going to come? The coachman says, I'm very sorry to tell you, the rabbis are not coming. Tonight, they're going to sleep in the home of the sofa, the scribe. Credulous? What do you mean, at the scribe? What are you talking about? You're here, aren't you? So yeah, I, the coachman, I'm here. But the rabbis, they went to Fival, the sulfur's house. And they said they're going to be sleeping by him. You can imagine this wealthy man rushed to the, the scribe. And he sees the small little house. He turns to them, he says, honored rabbis. As he sees them sitting, you can imagine at the fire, having a cup of tea, chatting with the host. He said, why have you done this to me? It was agreed that I would host you. Why are you humiliating me this way? And so the rabbi said, no, you are hosting us. At least that part of us that you want to host. The last time we were here, without the coach and the horses and the coachman and all the other honors. Well, you can imagine, then we came to your door and you told us to go sleep elsewhere. Where did we sleep that time? Here, by the sofa. So this time, too, we sleep at the scribe. I think the story, again, illustrates the idea of a love dependent on something versus one that isn't dependent on anything. The Maharal, Rabbi Yehud Lowy of Prague, he explained this Mishnah, he posed a, a, a question about Avraham Avinu. We go in the beginning of Parshas Lech Lecha in Genesis, and we see the Torah relates that God appeared to Avraham. Back then he was still called uh, Abraham. Right? He didn't have the hay in his name. And God said those famous words, Lech Lecha, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I'll show you. And God promises to make Abraham's descendants to a great nation. We're going to bring blessing to all the peoples of the world. And with that communication began the 3,800 year saga of our Jewish history. Many of the commentaries wonder about the fact that the Torah tells us virtually nothing about Abraham prior to this. You know how old he was at this point? 
He was already welcome in my seniors club. Abraham was 75 years old at the time and many very impressive achievements to his credit. You know, you think about his history. He was born to a pagan society. He explored and discovered the truth of one God and he began teaching it to the world, risking his very life to do so. And he gained very many followers and disciples, but the Torah tells us nothing about this. That's all Madrasha commentary. This is in, I guess, tremendous contrast to the other times that the Torah describes how a person was chosen by God for a special task. Think about, for example, before telling us about God's communication to Noah to build the ark. Torah describes how Noah was the only righteous person in a corrupt world at the time. Before recounting God's revelation to Moses, to Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush, where God sent him on the mission to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Torah describes all the events that took place, all the, everything that happened that, that, that established Moshe's qualities of leadership. His concern for his enslaved brethren, how he stands up to the bullying shepherds to come to the aid of the daughters of Yisro. His vocation as a shepherd. There's so much that the Torah tells us about him before. But with Abraham, the Torah is silent about his life. The Torah tells us nothing about his achievements before this specific divine call. And so the Maharal explains, if the Torah would have described Abraham's greatness to us, then God's choice of Abraham and a special covenant with him and with us as descendants would have been as a love that's dependent on something. Avram was chosen, you know why? Because of his wisdom, because of his courage, because of his kindness and self-sacrifice, all the other things that were told about him, but only not in the Torah text itself. Our special relationship with God would have been something dependent on the fact that perhaps we share those qualities of Avram, which we do. But it would imply that when we don't, then what about the love? It's no longer there. If we're not going to be worthy of behaving like Avraham, if we would not be the choice to be God's people, God forbid. So the Torah emphasizes that God's love of Avraham was not in any way dependent on anything and is therefore an eternal and unequivocal love. And the sages really tell us that our love for God is also a love that should not be one that's dependent on something. It's not a love that, oh, God, you're my ATM machine. I need some cash today. In the words of Rambam, he says, One who serves God out of love fulfills the Torah mitzvahs and follows in the path of wisdom for no reason in the world. Not out of fear that something bad will happen to them. Nor in order to have benefit from it. Rather, why do we do it? Because that's the truth. And because it's true, ultimately, good will also come from it as well. An idea that comes to my mind, especially these days. A doctor someone who studies medicine because of the benefit that he's going to gain from practicing medicine, the, the wealth he's going to accumulate by being a doctor, 
the salary he's going to get is going to be a lousy doctor because his passion is not medicine, care for others, but just the money. And therefore, it probably will be a lousy doctor and will make no money. On the other hand, if a person's care and concern is to help others, not dependent on the financial gain, and that person, not only will they make a great physician, but even more so, they'll probably, therefore, thereby, make good money as well. So it's very important. Our sages are telling us that there shouldn't be ulterior motives. There's got to be that altruism. As the saying in the Talmud goes, لَأَوْلَمْ يَاسِكْ أَدَمْ بَتَّيْرَةُ وَمِتْسْوَسْ أَفَا بِشِلَ Nevertheless, there's a benefit of even doing things for ulterior motives, not to discount your ulterior motives. Why? Says the Gemara, We have to realize that even if we do things for ulterior motives, ultimately we'll come to doing it for its own sake for an altruistic reason as well. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And we are back right here on 101.9 Chai FM, Soul to Soul. And we were talking about the Mishnah that tells us the difference between a love that's dependent on something and a love that is not dependent on anything. And the last insight I shared was that even if the love is dependent on something, hopefully we can grow in love. There's a problem in our day and age that people fall in love. And the problem of falling in love is that that love disappears. So perhaps it's better that people should grow in their love. When you grow in love, well, as the Mishnah tells us, that something, even if it's not done for the right reasons, hopefully one will come to do so for the right reasons. And perhaps that's what was behind the Rebbe's idea of his mitzvah campaigns of mitzvah on the spot for people on the go. I drive a mitzvah tank and we seize every opportunity. Whenever we can, stop someone, put on tefillin, do a mitzvah. Now, it seems to be saying something different than the Mishnah that we discussed earlier because the Mishnah is saying a love that's dependent on something will never last. But if we think about it a little deeper, we realize that it's actually not a contradiction. In fact, we see that both ideas are consistent with each other. Let, let's discuss the basic meaning of what does it mean to do something for the wrong reason, and you'll come to do it for the right reasons. Right? Essentially, there are two ways that we could do something. The first way is what the sages call lishma. Lishma means for its own sake, for its re- reason, for its purpose. Right? In other words, like Maimonides says, a person does the truth because it's true. And that's for ulterior motives and reasons. You don't marry somebody because they just look good or because they have a nice bank account. So the mission is telling us love that is not dependent on anything. It can't be if you marry somebody for money and they lose the money, well, okay, no more money, no more honey. Or the person doesn't look as appealing as they once did. Forget about it. But the other way of doing something is shalolishma. Not for its own sake. Not for ulterior motives. And obviously, we ideally should do things for the right reason. But what if we find that, that isn't enough to motivate us? 
Is it better not to do it at all? Or is it better to do the right thing for other reasons? Okay? As long as it results in doing the right thing. And I think that obviously is context dependent. There are many different situations. I want us to examine each particular instance, if that works or doesn't. But that's why I say relationships should be a matter of growing in love. Not dependent on one particular thing. Every relationship. Here's a nice story that perhaps could illustrate this. You see, there's an old Hasidic town in white Russia called Dukshis. Today it's Belarus. But many families, in fact, many families here in South Africa where I met, come from there. Come from Dukshis. I believe Sally Krak, whose birthday was yesterday, unlike Baumer, comes from Dukshis. And many of the people who lived there were followers of the Lubavitcher Rebbe at that time. We're talking about 18... Uh, 1830s, 1840s, up to 1880. I'm talking the Rebbe Maharash was born 1831, uh, 1834, sorry, passed away in 1882. So probably we're talking the late 1800s. Now, in Dukshits, there lived an elder chassid by the name of Reb Aron. Everybody called him Reb Aron. Now, one Matzah Shabbos, Reb Aron gave a sheer in Hasidism, the depth and wisdom of Hasidic teachings in the main shul of the town. And in the winter, they would have a samavar. A samavar, a nice kettle, an urn of what they called panis. It was a hot drink made with boiling water, vodka, and sugar. It's really nice. I tried it sometime in my youth. And they would set this up. And of course, everybody would come for the shear, for the learning period. This was great because it would warm their cold bones. They would sip on the drink and listen to the shear. Once a year, Abara would go to his Rebbe in Lubavitch, and they would have a private audience, a yichidus. And on one such occasion, the Rebbe turned to him and said, I hear that in Dakshits, they learn Hasidus of Panas. Tell me, what's the connection between learning and a samavara, earn a kettle of, of this drink. So when he came back home, he stopped the refreshment stand. He said, no more cake and cookies, no more of this drink. People should come just to learn for the sake of learning. But what do you think happened? Following week, less people came. The week after, less people. And it continued to dwindle throughout the winter. When he was back in Lubavitch the next year, the Rebbe asked him about his activities. He said, you know, it's very sad. Last year you told me about the situation that you asked me what's the connection between drinking and learning. And since then, I stopped the drinks and nobody comes to the study session. So the Rebbe looked at him and said, if that's the case, then let them drink and learn. As long as we're learning. So the Rebbe says, bring, bring it back. Abim is a learner. Abim is a learner. Hasidus was the exact words the Rebbe said. The main thing is that we should learn. So sometimes you need a little bit of bribery and corruption. As long as it achieves its purpose. I saw in a work of the Rashba. It's a work of response of questions and answers. And he had a question. He said a certain individual has this beautiful building that was next door to the shul. And he built it to serve as a... He built it next door to the shul. 
all at his own expense. Now he wants to put his name at the entrance of the shul. This was the question that came to the rabbi because he was sponsoring, made a big, gen- generous donation. Can they put his name on the front of the shul because he gave this big, generous donation of giving his own beautiful building next door to the shul? So the rabbi, the Rashba's response was, he said, in our community, we inscribe the names of donors on the wall. And this is a Jewish custom widely spread. He said, of course, it is a time-honored institution of our sages to reward those who do a mitzvah. And this publicizing that somebody did a mitzvah, that somebody gave a great donation, could hopefully influence and inspire others as well. And so this is part of, it's nice to do things anonymously, but to promote what you do, it hopefully inspires and influences others to do so as well. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Salt of Salamar Barakim. And we've been discussing today Mishnah, Perakeh, the fifth chapter of Perakeh and the 16th Mishnah, which tells us that a love that is dependent on something is not a love that will endure. On the other hand, I mentioned the Mishnah that tells us, that by doing something not for the right purpose, ultimately a person will get into the habit of motivating themselves to do the right thing for the right purpose. But to begin with, maybe they need incentives. People need incentives. Don't you need incentives? Don't we bribe our kids sometimes? Don't we do things? And eventually the child perhaps gets into the habit of doing the right thing. And we as adults too. And hopefully that will be able to develop a deeper appreciation and identification with our good deeds. And in the end, we'll come to do it for the right reasons, not just for the incentivized one. But there's a deeper meaning to this statement from the Talmud as well. The Gemara says, again, mitoch shema. If we look at the word mitoch, what does mitoch mean? From. Literally means, mitoch means like from within. So perhaps we can understand the Gemara saying, from within doing it, not for its own sake, he'll come to do it for the right reasons. From within. You think about this, Hasidus teaches us that the neshama, the soul, is dubbed a a piece of God that every human being has. We're created in God's image. And at the very core of our being, we each have a desire to do what is right. But the problem is that this inner self is often hidden. It's sometimes buried deep beneath other layers of our personality and our character. Those parts of ourselves that need to be motivated by other selfish reasons. So if we were to insist on a pure altruistic motive for our actions, that deeper self will never get a chance to actually truly assert itself. On the other hand, when we do what is right, even if our motive isn't perfect, we'll eventually get to the higher level of doing things for the right reason. You could say fake it till you make it. Because buried within our selfish motive is a deeper, truer motive, our soul's desire to fulfill its mission in life. And ultimately, this true desire will emerge from within and will express itself true desire to do the right things. A professor once had a discussion with the Rebbe 
and he was describing, so to say, like the weather here sometimes in the winter. It's nice and sunny outside, but you come inside and it's cold. And he says, outside sometimes, superficially, people pretend to be friends. They give you a smile. But he says, deep inside, I could tell that they don't care for one another. Deep inside, I know the psyche of human beings. There's a lack of care. And he was describing this condition that obviously perturbed him. So the Rebbe said it's like we look outside and we see nice, beautifully manicured gardens. We see landscapes. We see paved roads. But if we dig a little deeper, all we see then is dirt, schmutz, garbage. And he says, Rabbi, you're absolutely right. That's the way I feel about people. The Rebbe said, hold on, hold on. Dig a little deeper, dig a little deeper. And what happens when you dig deeper? If you dig deep enough, just right here in Johannesburg, you could find gold. You could find other precious metals. You could find diamonds, water. And this perhaps is a message to us as well, is don't look at a person just superficially. Mitoch, look deep within a person and you'll see there are beautiful reservoirs, tremendous gems, gifts that each person possesses. And I think this is true in all areas of life. Two people fall in love with each other. And yes, initially the love is driven by external factors. There's physical attraction, maybe there's talents, whatever it is. But over time, Hopefully, they don't fall in love. They grow in the love. And something deeper comes. And there's a greater appreciation. They experience a bonding of souls. And with it comes an unconditional love. A real true commitment to each other, not for the external factors. So then, we see here that the external factor, the finance, whatever it may have been, was just a motivation. Maybe it was something to get the people to uh, to meet each other, but they were able to find within themselves, as they grow in love, a much deeper bond and relationship. So let's conclude by just looking at one other aspect of this Mishnah. What do we say? Any love that's dependent on something, when that thing is gone, the love disappears. Now, initially, it seems negative. Don't base your love on external factors. It's not going to last. You marry somebody for money, easier to borrow from the bank everything you're going to go through. But according to what we learn now, there's another way to understand this message. And that is, don't be so quick to dispense with external motivations that your love depends on. Whether it's love for your spouse love for your children, your friendships with others, even your love for God. These props are often necessary and your love depends on that. And this is a deeper, more essential love that is within each of these factors. Within These are motivators for our love. If you dispense with those things, then you might actually lose the motivation for the love. So here it is, friends. Feed your love. Motivate yourself until the point that your deeper bond and that relationship could develop and really truly emerge. My dear friends, I want to wish you a 
Great, meaningful Shabbos. Carpe diem. Seize every moment. I'm looking forward to see you. Please, God, right here next week on Salt to Salt.